ground to help. There's one. Jimenez gets to the bag. Double play. See you later. That's all for the Braves in the seventh. Our witness to this gem. And this is a pop fly to Clint Barmas. One out in the ninth. He's got the sign. Here's the one-two. Ground ball to second. Barmas to first. Ubaldo Jimenez has no hit. The Atlanta Braves. Welcome into the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by Strava Craft Coffee. Remember to use that promo code DNVR20 because this week you get 30% off your entire purchase of that CBD infused, deliciously rich, and potentially life altering Strava Craft Coffee. I'm your host, Drew Creaseman. I'm the managing editor of DNVR Rockies. With me, as always, is beat writer Patrick Lyons. And on this episode, we continue our week-long conversation following the award season that we are in right now. On Monday, they were handing out Rookie of the Year, so we talked all-time Rockies rookies. Yesterday, it was Manager of the Year, so we talked all-time Rockies managers. Today, they're handing out that Cy Young Award. And so we're going to be talking all-time Rockies pitching seasons and we're going to stretch outside of that a little bit too and just talk about some of our favorite non-Rockies pitching seasons and we are especially thrilled to have along for the ride one of our favorite people actually our favorite person to talk baseball with pitching especially former Colorado Rockies pitcher Mark Knudsen thank you so much for joining man really appreciate oh, you taking the time. thrilled to be here so as you you heard me say there, we've been talking about, you know, these other, we did rookies, uh-huh. greatest rookies of all time. They're kind of a, a three-man race there at the top between Tulo, Todd Helton, and Jason Jennings, who actually won the thing. A couple well, of managers yeah. who, who were standout, right? And I feel like to get this conversation kicked off, Mark, I, I want to let you decide where we start. Because in my mind, there's three individual seasons in Rockies history that really stand out from the rest. Most recently, of course, mm-hmm. Kyle Freeland, right. 2018. You've got Ubaldo Jimenez in 2010. Mm-hmm. And lost in the shuffle oftentimes. People forget, actually, the best ERA plus, for those of you who are in that stat, in Rockies history. In 1994, Marvin Freeman. Which one of those uh, stands out most to you? Well, Marvin was a character. We all remember Marvin. <laughs> and I, I think if you're going to talk about Marvin Freeman, you got to include Kevin Ritz. Had, a, had a, I think, a 17-win season. Pedro Stasio had some really good situ- seasons there. But for dominance, those other two are the first two that like come to mind. Ubaldo's first half of that season was miraculous. If Clint Barmas catches a pop-up, he's a 20-game winner. Uh, that still happened in the first half. He had a not-so-good second half, but he, he won, what, 11 or 12 games in the first half and was well on his way. Uh, maybe more than that, to, to winning uh, 20 games. Uh, a couple of them got away from him. But th- he was so dominant in that first half. Um, as pitchers, we look as starting pitchers especially, we look at a block of t- 10 starts. And in 10 of those starts, twice, you're going to have incredible stuff and you're just going to cruise. Twice, you're going to have nothing and you're going to get knocked all over the place. Those middle six, something's going to be working, something's not. you got to adjust. you gotta, you got to mix and match. you got to figure out what I have good today. And you got to try to find a win, win more of those six games than you lose. That year, Ubaldo had, I don't know if he ever had 
two games where he didn't have something going. And he had multiple, I mean, he was fantastic stuff-wise all the way through. He didn't have to battle at all. In fact, I would point out that when he did have those games where he had less than stellar stuff, he didn't pitch very well. In fact, he had a lot. We saw that the rest of his career, he didn't do a good job of battling when, when something wasn't working. But for that, that period, the first half of that season, he, was, he wasn't breaking bats. He was exploding bats. I mean, his stuff was absolutely electric. Now, you flip it over to Kyle in 2018, and Kyle's not the same kind of pitcher. He wasn't the power guy that Ubaldo was. But he was masterful. He was Greg Maddox-like in his precision, the way he was pitching. And we all remember the one hitter against the White Sox. It could have honestly easily been a no-hitter with, with a couple a couple breaks there. So he was that was masterful in a totally different style because Kyle can pitch when he doesn't have his best stuff. He can get people out when something's not working that day, which Ubaldo couldn't do. Look, but look at those 10-start numbers really you talk about. Yeah, 10, it's, it's, 10 yeah, exactly. starts. Yeah, there's, there's no – he didn't have that those down times. He had, you know, almost eight or ten games where everything was awesome. Uh, you just don't have that unless you're, you know, a Hall of Fame pitcher. So that, that first half that year was just unbelievable. But Kyle – I think we all appreciate what Kyle did because the, the manner in which he did it, which was not the overpowering stuff. It was just masterful pitching. The one fun fact I, I took away from the 2011 season we're seeing here from Jimenez was the fact that he also got MVP votes, finished 23rd yeah. that year. Um, only the, the second player to ever get MVP votes yeah. from a pitcher. Houston Street also got some back in mm-hmm. 2009. Is, you know, it, it, you typically don't see pitchers, you know, in the MVP no. race. How, how hard is it for a starting pitcher to be? one of the more valuable players on a team when they're only going out there every five days? Well, they're only going out there every five days, but in certain situations, they're mm-hmm. saving the bullpen for other days or they're picking up, breaking a losing streak in certain situations. So, yeah, I think a pitcher can be an MVP. It, you're right, it's rare, but you can be because of, of the residual effects of the game, of what happens to the days you're not starting. And I think we've seen that from Clayton Kershaw. We've seen that from, from some other guys, how much better the team is because of what he gives them every five days. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting way to think about it. Uh, that that extra value that they bring yeah. even when they're not on the field. Um, yeah. And, and well, I, mean, I, mean, I remember Ubaldo that year was going seven, eight innings all yeah, the time. Exactly. You know, guys don't do that anymore. And, and in hindsight, you wonder did that burn his arm out a little bit? The blister issues Perhaps. that came up shortened his career. But while he was doing it, they sure did ride him. Yeah. He would yeah. force for that. And, and you know, there's other ways you can be valuable as a starter too. You know, and we've seen that more recently from guys like John Gray who go out and give up three or four or five runs early, but gather themselves and stretch it into the seventh inning to save the bullpen for the next day. That's a valuable, be your own long reliever in a, in a sense. That's a valuable trait too. And guys who are having Cy Young seasons will do that. They'll give up, maybe they'll have a bad game and give up three or four in the first couple innings, but still stretch it into the seventh inning to, keep, to save the bullpen. So yeah, starting pitchers can provide value in other ways other than just going out and dominating. With Freeland, you said he was very Maddox-esque and yeah. – you know, I, I think people forget that that Maddox actually threw a little bit harder than uh, they they might remember. He was very much a finesse pitcher, mm-hmm. but still got his share of strikeouts. Oh, yeah. You know, do you think that you know Freeland could ever actually win the Cy Young, considering the fact that you typically don't see a, a pitcher garner too many votes if he's not striking out close to nine guys a game, well, and that's just not Freeland's game. Perhaps, but I think about this. Brandon Webb and guys like that with the power sinkers weren't striking mm. guys, but they were, they were still – in fact, 
as a high school coach, I, I don't want my guys going out and trying to strike everybody out. I want to put the ball in play to save their arm to, 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 so they can go more innings, throw fewer pitches. So Kyle, that, that season, I remember the first, his first start uh, was a home opener against the Dodgers. I mean, think about that. His first major league start was the home opener against the Dodgers, and he was great that, that day. And then, of course, he had the near no-hitter right before the All-Star break. I think he was just super consistent in everything he did. And if we, you know, we hear all about the altitude all the time, and they diminish hitters. And we've all three written about this and talked about this forever. That it, they diminish what Coors Field does to hitting hitting statistics. They ought to benefit the pitchers. When a pitcher has a magnificent year at Coors Field, it should count for more than a guy who has a great season at Dodger Stadium. And that's why I think Kyle got shortchanged that year. He he should have been. I think he finished fourth in the Cy Young. And yeah, there were some guys who had magnificent seasons that year, but he was right there with all of them. Because to do this at Coors Field, and again, he's a local kid. Coors Field doesn't affect him like it affects some other people. But to do that there and put those kind of numbers up at Coors Field should have counted for more than it did. There's another element of the Freeland case that I think is interesting across all eras of baseball, Mark, that I really want to get your take on because I argued a lot that year. I felt like he should have come in second. It was hard to argue with DeGrom's overall numbers. Exactly. Freeland pitched in so many important games, and you yes. look at what he did down the stretch that year, clinching the Rockies getting into the postseason. I know the wild card yep. game technically doesn't you know, count for these awards, but all right. of the, the fact that he was pitching in so many important games, and I think you know that he did that where, uh, unfortunately, you know, Marvin Freeman in 94, the team wasn't right. quite as competitive. Right. Uh, Jimenez in 2010, that, that team was competitive, fell off at the end of the year that Freeland powered through success. How different of an atmosphere is it for you as a starting pitcher when the postseason's on the line? Yeah, that's a great point, Drew. And I I think a lot of us point that too. How many, in fact, I will go back to when um, uh, Giancarlo Stanton was with the Marlins, the one, the MVP the year. I mean, how many games did he play that had playoff implications? I mean, I'd argue maybe the only the four he played at Coors Field to end the year in 2017, right? Mm-hmm. When against the Rockies, it might have been only four games he played all year that had playoff implications, and Nolan should have won the MVP or Charlie that year, either one of them, um, because, because of that fact you're talking about. So I think it's, um, it's overlooked, uh, the games you pitch in. Uh, Bud likes to use the term high stress, or high stress innings, high stress pitches. Um, yeah, DeGrom didn't have too many of those that year with a lousy Mets team, and when he was getting lousy. One is a high stress pitch. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that really should matter. In fact, I've always been an advocate, and I, I vote for the Heisman Trophy as well as I mean, you guys vote for, for, for the baseball awards. They shouldn't have to give these awards out until the postseason's over because the postseason's the most important part of the year. And so yeah. if, if a guy's going out and, and dealing in the postseason, yeah, I know they have separate awards and he gets the you know MVP, the NLCS or whatever. But if you're going to win the signing award, you should be putting those numbers up in the postseason. You should be carrying your team through the postseason like Madison Bumgarner did that one year. Yeah. Um, that, to me, wins, should win you the Cy Young Award, not just having a good regular season. But uh, that falls on deaf ears. We've had those conversations before about how to effectively do that or to create more, more awards in, in baseball, like just celebrate the game more. Do you, do you think something like that, you know, cheapens the game? If you know, there's, you got gold gloves over here, silver slugger over there. Is it too much? Or do you think baseball needs to do a better job in marketing the game? I don't think that's terrible. Although this year, I don't think they should have given out any awards over a 60 game. I think the Dodgers won one third Mm -hmm. of a world series and, you know, uh, as great as Nolan was, he won one third of a gold glove in my mind this year. But that's you know that's nitpicking. Um, <laughs> it's just me. But yeah, I I, I, I think they're so I think they're fine. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think the way they do it is fine. I would just like to see them continue these awards or, or have the have the um, have the postseason count because those are the most important games these guys play in. Yeah, 
Yeah, we had talked about either doing it for the full postseason or for just doing separate postseason awards. And, yeah. uh, you know, because we talked about how this year where a guy like Randy or Arena wouldn't be up for any regular season awards yeah. might be like second in postseason yeah. MVP voting. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of cool. Well, I mean, who are they going to give the who are they going to give the Heisman Trophy to this year? How many games is Heisman Trophy going to get to play in? I mean, I, I I think that's. But if they play have a playoff, that should determine who wins the Heisman Trophy. But we'll see if that even happens. Yeah, yeah there's already there's already an issue of voters not seeing other teams play, and, and this yeah. year where it was so hard, where right. typically you vote on the National League awards, yeah. and you say actually, I you know we only saw teams from the West, NL and, right. and AL, so That's it's right. so hard to to, to vote and, and be effective. But so far, it seems like yep. the BBWA has done a pretty good job. Here we're seeing well, some highlights. Oh, go ahead, Mark. I think I think those of you guys who vote um, did a really good job of, uh, and those of you guys who who have advocated for the additional statistics the, the as as we're trying to the era plus and the ops and the war and all those i think that makes it easier honestly for people to vote for an mvp i mean that's obviously why uh you know our buddy manny randall wants to kill the win which is a nonsensical idea which I've told him a million times. you don't you don't you're never going to get rid of it but if you add more stats to it then a guy like degrom wins a, can win it because you see the value beyond just the wins and losses right yeah, I'm, I'm all for doing more recognition of good things yep. that are going in, on inside yep. the game of baseball. Yep. Speaking of someone who needs a little more recognition, <laughs> just, just Marvin tell Freeman. us anything you want to tell us about Marvin Freeman. The floor is uh, yours. Uh, my, my favorite Marvin Freeman story is, um, we're, we all listen, we've all heard Jim Rome's radio show, but when Marvin, they're in San Diego, and uh, Jim Rome was doing a show from the bleachers in San Diego, and they were heckling Marvin, and Marvin came up and got on the radio with them, and uh, because they were giving Marvin such a hard time because he was such a goofball. Uh, that, that I remember listening to that and just laughing, laughing hysterically at the way Marvin was carrying himself. You know, you can get away with that for a while. It obviously, doesn't uh, there's not a lot of longevity that kind of act, but for a while there, he was a lot of fun, and he was he he put he made people believe you could pitch effectively at Coors Field, and um, that was obviously very important. And he hit sure was. at Coors Field too. <laughs> yeah, there, there we, we see it, and and he was he did it also at at Mile High too, which yeah, which is yeah. interesting to to think yep. about what, you know, what was it like pitching in that that ballpark, and and what were your memories? I imagine as a, as a kid growing up in Colorado, you had been to games there to watch the Broncos, maybe even seen games of the Denver Bears at that time. I, I went to I worked at the at the stadium for when the Denver Bears were there worked in the parking lot. So I'd go in and watch batting practice before I went on my shift and, and I'd go out there and I'd collect, I collected hundreds of foul balls, dozens of foul balls uh, during batting practice. That I ended up going home and practicing with. So yeah, the Denver mm. bears were a big part of my youth. Uh, and then I played for the Zephyrs at mile high. Um, we won the, won the American association championship in the triple a world series in 1991. So I was very familiar with, with mile high stadium before I became a Rocky. Um, but and we knew all about the, the difficulties pitching there and the difficulty how easy it was to hit, especially the left field. But again, I'll go back to the fact I'm a hometown kid. I grew up with these with these in these positions, so the way my ball moved and the way my ball broke, that was normal for me. I'd have to change a little bit when I went on the road uh, and back up. When I got to Florida, I had to back off a little bit, which is e much easier than adding on. I think Steve Reed and I've had this same conversation. Steve grew up in Montana. So he wasn't—he didn't have that much of a problem with Coors Field either, with Mile High Stadium because he was used to these conditions. So that was a kind of an advantage for me. Um, well, at least it was—at least was the reason I didn't complain about the altitude. I never have because this is home. But um, guys who can adapt to it, 
like Marvin did that year, and and, and tip tip of the hat. I mean, that's uh, you got you got to adapt. That's for sure. Especially looking back on it, because then you know when he was doing it, you might have gone like, "Hey, what a great season for a guy pitching out new ballpark, new area, new place, yeah. like all that stuff." We look back on it now. We see how few people have approached this level of dominance at Coors Field over a single yeah. season. Like, this yeah. is actually very special, very yeah. rare. And it was difficult to appreciate it fully at the time. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, you got to be tough mentally. But Don Baylor was the one who never let anybody think about it, never let the pitchers use it as an excuse. He said, both teams are playing here. We're the home team. We got to get used to it. We got to adapt and get used to it. And I, I think they did, for the most part, when Don Baylor was the manager here. I think I don't think the complaining started until Don was gone. And then you got to start hearing guys like Brian Bohannon, you know, uh, Mr. Physical Fitness, was complaining <laughs> about the, how tired how tired he'd get here and all that. Like, you know, come on. Uh, hi, there's a reason elite athletes come here to train, to get in better physical condition. I think the current group at, at Coors Field is embracing that idea, that this is where you train to get in prime, prime physical condition. And then if you're in that, better, that much better shape, you should be dominating here. Um, Tom Glavin told me after a game at, at, at Coors Field once in the clubhouse, I've never, I'm never more tired, I'm never more sore than I am after I pitch here. And I th remember thinking to myself, well, that's good. That's called a home field advantage. That's what the Rockies have to make it. And, and, and I, I think in, especially in the, the pre-Bud Black years and pre-Jeff um, Breidich years, it was being used as an excuse too often by a lot of guys. And it's, it really shouldn't be an excuse. It should be an advantage. We talked about Don Baylor yesterday on our DNVR Rockies podcast and how great of a manager he was and so respected, even got a, a third place vote in, in 93 on a 67 win ball club or 65 win ball club. Yep. And, we, and, did, and we, did, we did not lose 100 games, which was Don's preaching to us in spring training. We will not lose 100 games. And we did. Did he seriously? He certainly did. He absolutely did. <laughs> he, uh, I well, love he played this game. I don't care anyone. <laughs> John, the thing about the thing well? about Don, yeah, he was our well, he was our. I played against him a lot, and then uh, he, he became our hitting coach in Milwaukee. Yeah. He was brought in specifically to to tutor Gary Sheffield, who was a problem child at that point. And it's Don was very frustrated by Gary Sheffield. I can promise you that. But <laughs> I got Don was the first guy that introduced me to video. He had a, a portable VCR. He uh, has as a starting pitcher, we'd spend games in the in the clubhouse running the VCR machine changing tapes cassette tapes so don had a tape on each hitter and each pitcher uh i remember pitching a game against the mariners at, at milwaukee and getting on on a getaway day and i get on the plane and don gives me his machine his portable vcr portable tv machine and this was a big deal back in back in those days and he said what I, I watched the game i just pitched we didn't get to do that back then i'm now it's easy but then we couldn't do that and i remember watching pit and pitch by pitch the game i had just pitched against the mariners because of don baylor when i the thing that struck me about him when he made it as a manager, though, when I played for him for the time I played for him here, was as much as that we all hear about the Blake Street Bombers, uh, you know, just go up and hit home runs. He no. wasn't Earl Weaver. He wasn't a guy that just sat back and played for the three-run home run. He knew how, he knew that guys had to get on in motion on the bases because if you do that, now the pitcher's distracted. Now the hitter's going to get better pitches to hit. And that offensive approach was was tremendous. And I don't think anybody's mastered that since you know, where, where they say, okay, we're going to put runners in motion. We're going to hit and run. We're going to steal bases. We're gonna... Eric Young had magnificent stolen base seasons, obviously, under Don Baylor. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do those things because that's going to get the hitters better pitches to swing at. And I, I, I think that's a tremendous way to look at offensive baseball. And I try to do that now with my high school team. Um, don't sit back and play for doubles and home runs. You've got to move runners. You've got to get things going because your hitters are going to benefit from that. So, yeah, Don, under, I think underrated as a manager. I think he really was a really good manager. He didn't handle pitchers great because pitchers were his enemy as a player. 
and he wasn't very, <laughs> he wasn't very he wasn't very uh, patient with shall I say with the pitchers. But I think given more time, I think he would have gotten there. He could have been a really good pitcher, and he's really missed right now. That's really astounding too, because Marvin Freeman was essentially oh, a relief yeah. pitcher for four years going into it, made five starts between 90 and 93. And then so all of a sudden he goes from the bullpen to a starter and does what he does. And, so. I, and I can promise you the antics did not make Don Baylor happy. <laughs> Mar- the sideshow that went along with Marvin did not make Don Baylor happy. I promise. He's still doing that on Twitter. We should give him a shout yeah. out. Cause he's, yeah. he's still, you know, uh, pumping up his, his guys. Yeah. yeah. We got to get him on the show. We got to. Oh, you have to. Yeah. He might take over your show. Well, we'll, set aside, yeah. we'll set aside two and a half hours <laughs> just in case. Uh, now, I, I, I do want to keep us on pitching because it's the topic of the day, but there's a, mm-hmm. there's a slight, because we're in that era, um, detour that I want to take for two reasons. One, because I just wrote about this today. I just published an article about the Blake Street Bombers and how much of them were either products of Coors Field or just the fact that they were really, really good. And so, I, first of all, I want to recommend that anyone go and read that. But you got to be a subscriber. So if you're not subscribed, do that and use that code Rockies. Remember, tr- we're trying to beat all the other beats. If you use the code Rockies, you get a free shirt, a free hat, no, free shirt, free mask, and a free sticker pack. So you got to do that. Really good stuff for you. And one of the things that I think was the most intriguing because it, it's actually pretty clear for me: Walker and Burks, those guys were otherworldly talents who would have been phenomenal right. anywhere. Put them aside. They weren't right. products of Coors Field. Right. and Castilla, maybe a little bit. Their best seasons clearly came in Denver. There's no, uh, as soon as they left, their numbers dropped. There's not a lot of evidence they could have been great elsewhere. Andres Galarraga, on the other hand, at 30 years old, turned into a monster. And while, yeah, some of it was coming to mile high and, and coming out to Denver, like he continued on in San Francisco and Atlanta. Uh, I know he had a huge season there in uh, 93. What do you remember about just watching this guy? Because he'd had some decent years in Montreal, then three years where he'd been pretty bad. And then he comes to Denver and he's this otherworldly guy. And I think it cemented in a lot of people's minds this idea that, oh, just come to Coors Field and you can go from average hitter to great hitter. But it's pretty clear to me something else clicked with Andres Colorado. Well, I think it was a perfect storm, to be honest with you, for all three of those guys. Now, I was with Dante. We were teammates in Milwaukee when Don was the hitting coach. One of the reasons Don wanted to bring Dante over here, he saw the potential. He saw this was a guy who was, whose best years were ahead of him. Dante's first year in, in Milwaukee, I think he hit six home runs. and he was, Or no, I take that back. He had a bunch of home runs. But he was striking out a lot. Now, he replaced a guy in, in right field in Milwaukee named Rob Deere. And Rob Deere was, you know, Dave Kingman-esque, swing from your heels. Yeah. Robbie would hit yeah. some bombs, but Robbie struck out all the time. And he drove, he drove our fans, our followers crazy because he struck out all the time. Well, Dante came in and started doing the same thing. So he started getting the same, same criticisms. And, oh, my God, it's another Rob Deere. He just strikes out all the time. Well, that's where Dante came up with the two-strike approach that he used so well when he was here. And he used it exclusively, regardless of the count, the following season. Hit six home runs, but he hit 320. And I think it wasn't until he got here that Don Baylor came in and do both of those things. You can still hit the ball with authority because, I mean, Dante was massive. He was Big he guy, yeah. massive, for, massive forearms. He, he could hit the ball a ton. And he had a little showmanship in him, but he was pretty shy at that point when he first came to Milwaukee. He really hadn't come into his own yet. Don Baylor brought him into his own, I think, gave him, gave him an opportunity to play every day in right field. Dante was a pretty good outfielder in, in his early days. Um, so was Rob Deere, for that matter. They were very good defensive players. Uh, which was totally overlooked because of the strikeouts. 
Dante didn't like the criticism he got for striking out, so he went to the two strike and he started flipping the ball to right field all the time, hit six home runs. The guy said, well, what happened to the home runs? So Don helped him learn to do both. And I think Vinny was the same way. Vinny came and Don was the right manager in the right situation for Vinny. Uh, and certainly that's the case with Cat. Cat was a really good player. I played against him in double-A when he was with the Expos. I mean, he was he was given his nickname because of his fielding prowess. I mean, we don't talk very much about that when we talk about Galarraga. He was an extraordinary defensive first base, and some people think one of the greatest ever. Now, I played, and he played in the same area as Keith Hernandez, who I think is the greatest defensive first baseman, certainly, that I've ever seen. But Cat was right there with him, right there with him. And he didn't get enough credit for that. But that probably kept him in the big leagues during his hitting struggles. And I don't know when it was. I can't remember exactly when I saw him alter his batting stance to, to be so wide open. Mm -hmm. most, I tell my players, most guys who are right-handed are also right-eye dominant. So if you're crouching and turning and you're not, you're, you're seeing the ball to your left eye, right? You're, you're, you're not seeing the ball to your right eye. I think Cat standing up like that and turning his head and being able to see the pitcher and striding into the ball helped him learn that. Again, that's something Don Baylor helped him refine. So to say those three guys are totally products of Coors Field, I think is unfair. I think it was a perfect storm with them coming to Don Baylor, coming to a hitter-friendly environment, and suddenly becoming what they could have been all along. Oh, look at it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's the good, I love that batting stance. I, I, yeah, I've, I, I, I've I, often wondered why more guys don't do that. I, I try to teach my kids who are struggling to stand up straight, see the ball. You can see you can see the ball with both eyes because you hit with your eyes. You don't hit anything else. If you can't see the ball, you're not going to hit it. And people who are, who are crouched and closed and turned and you can only see the ball at the corner of your left eye, how are you supposed to hit the ball? You just aren't. So I think, um, yeah, that, that was a great – I'm not sure if Don helped him or find that, if he did it before he came here. I don't remember. Um, but he didn't swing that way in double A. Uh, so someone got along, got with him and, and it's just, a, you have to be a great talent to do the things he did. It's not, it wasn't flukish. He hit 44 home runs in Atlanta, his first year away from Coors Field at exactly. the age of 37. Yep. Yep. He was, yeah. he was a gifted man. It was all about getting healthy for him too. I think that yeah. that was one reason that allowed Colorado to to snatch him up so so cheaply at first. They were giving him an opportunity, had to fill up that roster, and 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 he came through in a, in a real major way. You know, I think go, yeah. Go ahead. There's Mark. a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys that fall in that category. A lot of guys that Don Baylor gave an opportunity. Benny being one, Freddie Benavides, Eric Young, guys like that got their chance to come here and play regularly and made the most out of it. Um, Vinny was, you know, was a shortstop with Atlanta. They brought him over here as a shortstop in the draft, and they moved, and they saw, Don and, and the staff saw, this guy's prototypical third base type, and obviously he found his way there, and if not for Nolan Arenado, you're talking about best third baseman in the Rockies history. A lot of guys got poached from the, that Atlanta club in yep. the expansion well, draft. They could afford it. Yeah. They were deep, pretty deep. <laughs> They're bleeding talent. I mean, yeah. You 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 even have David Need, who's who's yeah. a guy that you know some of the old timers do remember. Of mm -hmm. course, never factored into any Cy Young debates, but no. he was kind of the the big young stud uh, in in '93 and going forward. You know, had a had a nice little career. What do, what do you remember about well, the Rockets' David first ever expansion pick? David, it wasn't my place to tell him this, but I had learned when I played for the Zephyrs in, I think it was 88. My pitching coach was a guy named Jackson Todd, who had pitched in the, with the Blue Jays. And he suggested I watch Earl Hershiser, who was having a monster <laughs> season that year, and said, shorten your, your stride a little bit. Cut, you you want to go downhill more. If you cut you know, six inches off your stride, get on top of the ball and you'll throw the ball downhill more. And I took that to heart, and that really made a difference in me. I, I went, I, my career took off at that point. I watched David throw, and I thought, this is a guy who's five foot ten or five foot eleven. He's trying to pitch like he's six eight. He had a monstrously long stride. 
he took the mound completely, the, the downhill part of the mound completely out of the equation. And I've told him this. We talked about it. I saw him at the 20th reunion a few years back. Um, there's a pic, there was pictures of David in the clubhouse at Coors Field where he was so low, he looked Tom Seaver-ish. And to, listen, Tom Seaver was my guy. I wore 41 my whole career because of Tom Seaver. But I couldn't do what Tom Seaver did. In fact, Tom Seaver and I talked about the fact that I, I couldn't do what Tom Seaver did body-wise. And neither could David. And David just didn't have that, that kind of stuff. And I think he could have been better than he was if somebody really had got with him and, and, and tweaked those mechanics. But he was a great kid, and he, he came in with a bunch of expectations and a bunch of hype, obviously. Everybody was overwhelmed by what, what we came into here uh, that first year. But I remember I talked to, I've talked to Kent Bottenfield about this a couple of times. I wrote a big article about Kent Bottenfield. And he said that opening game at Mile High Stadium, and he was pitching for Montreal before he became a Rocky later in the year. Uh, he said, it was so loud I couldn't even think. It was so loud I never heard anything like that. He said, Philippe Alou came out to him and, and screamed at him, and he couldn't hear what he was saying. It was just so loud with 80,000 people in the stands. So there was a lot on David and a lot on guys. That's why they picked Brent Smith to, to start that opener. But um, David came in with a lot of hype and a lot of expectations, and I think he handled himself really well during that period. All right, Patrick, where are we at? Before we move on to the non-Rockies stuff, we've got a few other Rockies well, pitchers we don't want to forget about. Well, the, well, the last guy uh, basically that got a Cy Young Award vote would have been in 2007, ninth place, so he probably just got oh, one third-place vote. But we can't forget, he's he's one of the four, uh, Mr. Jeff Francis. Still yeah, another, another guy with um, – I think I talked to Daniel Dowd about Jeff one time, and he said, you know, we knew his, mechan his mechanical flaws were going to lead to arm problems. But we were riding it because he was going so good at such a such a point. You know, he had the great demeanor on the mound. Nothing ever rattled him. He was just smooth as silk. And, um, you know, left-handed in Coors Field is going to be a big advantage. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I think had there been some mechanical changes, maybe that career lasts a little bit longer. But while he while he was on top of his game, he was fantastic. I mean, how many of us have been on the cover of Sports Illustrated? That was pretty cool. And, you know, yeah. and, his running, and his running mate, Aaron Cook, was another guy with amazing stuff. Amazing, that, that, that sinker was just – ridiculous and a guy yeah. here i keep talking like a coach right because that's what i do now uh, a guy who who if i could have talked him out of that slide step when he had the guys on he had guys on base he would flat go flat foot the side step that sinker was about a foot higher when it got to home plate than it was out of the full windup when he had the tremendously high knee kick if he could have found a way to du duplicate the out of the stretch i don't know the guy that ever got beat because his stuff was just incredible so the two of them between the two of them i honestly think better coaching might have benefited both of them but nonetheless they were fantastic when they were on top of their games. You mentioned that you mentioned that advantage that left-handed pitchers have at Coors Field, mm -hmm. and again, you know, we we know how uh, minority of pitchers are are left-handed, and yet half the guys that you know have factored into the Cy Young race for the Rockies have been left-handed. Do you mm -hmm. think that's that's a, a strategy or of roster construction that that maybe Colorado needs to take advantage well, of? You more want, and have you at least balance. two, maybe three. I think last year. Yeah, yeah, you want balance. They have balance. I think, you know, with Kyle and they've had some other left-handers here. Um, certainly you'd like to see what Rolison has when he comes up. You know, there's an, a young left-hander. Um, they have an advantage simply because the other team's going to play right-hand, more righty batters, and it's a little tougher to hit right-handers. Right are usually a little bit less damaging than left-hand hitters. So that's the advantage is just how lineup construct the other team's line lineup construction. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, you got the shorter porch in right field, so you'd rather have right-handed hitters up and so on and so forth. Um but, yeah, you definitely need balance. Now, it's not the same as it was with the three-batter minimum. You can't have that left-handed, that Jesse Horosco who could pitch till he's 50, just come and pitch to one guy every night. Um, those guys, you know, kind of got the short end of that deal. But yeah. you have to have left-handers, and you have to have left-handers that can get righties out. Um, I played for yeah. a guy who's not going to register on anybody's bell, his radar, named Tony Fossis. 
in Milwaukee. Bob Euchre nicknamed him the, nicknamed him the mechanic because he looked like you said he looked like a guy who would change your oil, not a guy who'd come in and pitch. And that's true. But Tony, <laughs> Tom Trouble and our manager would bring Tony into games to face a lefty, knowing the other team was going to put a righty in. But Tony's numbers were better against right-handers than they were against left-handers. Um, so that you know, you can find someone like that, and we've seen cases of that. That's moving forward. We've seen a few guys whose whose numbers don't match up with the righty lefty thing. Those guys can be pretty valuable too. But I think balance is important when you're constructing a pitching staff, and you want to have some lefties you can count on for sure. Yeah. And though he didn't factor into any great individual season, Super Producer Kale would throw things at me if I didn't mention his all-time okay. favorite Colorado Rocky, and really the, the the best pitcher in Rocky's history is Jorge De La Rosa. Yeah, and he didn't yeah. ever have yeah. any one season where he was. Uh, super dominant. He's just the only guy to ever figure out how to pitch six, seven yeah. years in a row at Coors Field and just be good. It's funny. I, was, I mentioned that to Dick Monford once, and he said to me, "Yeah, but he's not be able. Can't win on the road." Geez, you can't have everything, can you? Um, I, I, you're right. He is the he is the greatest. Like seventy percent of his yeah, home games. Yeah. He, he is the best pitcher in Rockies history for for those, just those reasons. And that's again that goes back to what we're talking about about being an MVP. How much benefit did the Rockies get from having a guy that could give them seven innings every time, and they could count on that. They could count on getting six or seven every time. That's how you set up your bullpen for other games. I mean, he he was super valuable in that regard too. But um, yeah, he was quiet. You know, just went about his business. No Marvin Freeman in, in, in Jorge, obviously, just went out and did his job. And yeah, that guy was, uh, he was outstanding. Again, nothing super spectacular. He had the great splitter, but nothing overwhelming. He threw hard, but you never put him in that category either that he was, you know, going to blow everybody away. He just knew how to pitch, knew how to use what he had. And he was really, really good at, at all of that and really, really good here, which is cool. Yeah. So, before we move into the uh, non-Rockies pitchers, we, of course, got to move a little bit of paper here. And since, you know, the Cy Young Awards are coming out, uh, obviously no time to bet on who's going to win them now. But I'm sure the odds will come out for next season here very, very, very soon. Apologies to anyone, by the way, who took uh, my advice and, and put some money down on Herman Marquez to win the Cy Young this year. Didn't quite come out that way. It was no, a long look. It was long shot. It's always going to be a long shot with a rocky hitter, a rocky pitcher, obviously. And and Herman is is frustrating in a lot of ways because you see the ability and the talent that's there, and it just never hasn't manifested itself over a full season just yet. But keep our fingers crossed, right? Right. So you know, find out what the odds are for next year. <laughs> Even though I'm, I'm doubling down, I don't <laughs> care. Uh, download the DraftKings okay. Sportsbook app now. Check it out. But if you want maybe a little bit of buffer, if you're not quite ready to bet on next baseball season, maybe a bit of a pigskin fan. And that's actually all for the better because our special right now hooks you up with Sunday's action, ensuring all new users are covered up to 100 bucks. That's right. You bet, and they cover risk-free on Sunday all of Sunday's action and this weekend there is plenty going on for you to get involved with so download the DraftKings the top rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now use that promo code DNVR when you sign up and get this can't miss offer you must be 21 or older Colorado only risk-free coverage paid out in site credits restrictions apply see DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and if you have a gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700 Oh, no, Wild the Innocent Very doesn't nice. want us to move on from the Rockies just yet <laughs> without a Josh Fogg Dragon Slayer mention. No Fogger? What is wrong with us? Well, <laughs> There's a lot I, of guys, I, honestly, like that in right. Rockies who have probably right. fallen through the cracks. I, I don't think Josh would put himself in those categories either. I, I mean, as pitchers, we can really appreciate someone who's a cut above 
what what we were able to do. And I'm sure Josh had, he had he did have some very big moments for the Rockies, but he he was not among the all time best. No, he did take the ball in the best. Game yes, he did. yes, he did. Yes, he did. Well, Mark, you played with and against some some great players in your day who coincidentally ended up becoming Colorado Rockies. One of those mm-hmm. guys, of course, being Brett Saberhagen, two-time yeah. Cy Young Award winner. You got to see him up close and personal mm-hmm. in 89 uh, with with the Royals. You know, what did you take away from from his career and how did you like his transition in Colorado? Well, I don't, I don't think it went so great in Colorado. I, I, I'm, not <laughs> sure, I'm not sure he wasn't damaged goods when he got here, to be honest with you, because mm-hmm. I was doing radio with KOA when, when he made his, uh, his, his a game here. They ended up going 26 innings, I think, and um, uh, Rockies lost 27 to, or tw- tw- I mean, it was ridiculous. I can't remember what the score was. All I know is I, I didn't get home till four in the morning. I know that. Uh, Wayne Hagen and Jeff Kingery stuck me on the air doing sports talk during a three-hour rain delay. Uh, so Brett had started. I remember it was against the Cubs. A lot, Wayne. But the, yeah, the guy had uh, Sabes had just tremendous physical stuff. I mean, I, I don't think there was any, there wasn't any trick there. There wasn't any. Um, uh, you know, I love the delivery. I, I'm still a guy, and I watched saw, saw some video of Bob Gibson this morning. I'm still a guy who likes the full windup. I like the guys who do a full windup because John Gray's motion makes me sick. I'm sorry, it does. It, it is this flat-footed, just go for nothing. Don't use your body. It leads to arm problems and inconsistencies. Now, coaches are teaching that at lower levels right now because they want to simplify, you know, let fewer moving parts. But it does damage to a guy later on in his life. But watch Sabes, Sabes delivery, you know, the full windup. He doesn't go over his head like most of us did, but he used his body really well, and he had he just had great natural stuff. I don't know that he wasn't a, wasn't um, you know a, a student of the game type, you know Maddox type guy. He was here it is hit it, and um, you know that he for for that period of time as a royal he was magnificent, just magnificent. Well, Mark, if you're ever. Stuff. If you're ever implicated in any crimes, uh, we know where you're at on August 18th, 1995. That was the game against the Cubbies. Oh, man. They, what was the final they, score? What was it? It was ridiculous. It was 26 to seven. Yeah, yeah. Saber like Hagen lasted for all of one out, yeah, two yeah. walks, five hits, yeah. seven earned runs. Yeah. It was ugly. Okay. I remember that. And, and again, I think I think he was. I don't think he was right when he got we got him. I mean, it was a big deal when we got him in, at the trade deadline, but I just don't think he was right. I, I we certainly never didn't get the best uh, best of Brett Saber when he came over here from the Mets, if I remember right. Yeah, that's right. It was it was at the deadline. That was his fourth start in, with with Colorado, and and still ended up playing a couple more seasons. Well, with well listen, Boston. when I when I got home from the from the ballpark at four in the morning, my wife was like, "Where have you been?" I said, "Did you hear about that plane that landed on the highway?" Uh, one of those deals, because yeah, we didn't get out of there till I mean, after doing the post game, I don't think we got. I was there until three o'clock in the morning. It was ridiculous. Where was that California tiebreaker back then when we needed it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you you would have needed that around the third inning at that point. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, pretty uh, much. It was pretty bad. Now I I heard a rumor that, and you maybe you can set the record straight, Mark, that okay. in your career, you beat three members of the four thousand strikeout club, Nolan Ryan, mm-hmm. Roger Clemens. And Randy Johnson, is that true in your career? Did you face yeah. those guys and beat them? I, I did. Um, I didn't wow. pitch against Steve Car- Steve Carlton. I played against Steve Carlton when he was on the downhill side, so I didn't get to do do the, all four. But you, what it fails to mention is some of the guys that I couldn't beat. <laughs> there was a lot of guys <laughs> you've never heard of that I couldn't beat. So it, uh, it, it works out that way. I I got an opportunity to pitch against Nolan on opening day in 1991, um, and that I, that be, that came about because I was slated to be the three number three starter that year. 
But Teddy Higuera, our number one guy, went down with an injury. Chris Bozzi, our number two guy, went down with an injury. And lo and behold, the guy who stayed healthy got the pitch opening day. It wasn't my – I didn't have my best game. Nolan certainly didn't have his best. I think Robin hit a home run. Uh, I know I gave up one to Kevin Reimer, but um, we ended up getting the win, so I ended up getting the, getting the decision that day, which was – I mean, obviously that's a highlight. Nolan had been my teammate in Houston when I was first drafted. I learned a lot from just watching him carry himself, how he – uh, prepared to start, not just how he started, but how he prepared to start. He was just spectacular, uh, a spectacular teacher. Um, Nolan Ryan was um, not not an outwardly talkative guy about it, but if you came, to Nolan wanted to, want, he would tell you flat out, "Here's what you're not doing. Here's here's where you suck, and here's where you need." And you know, it was great <laughs> to be around that man. I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that man, and to chance get a chance to pitch against. But I also got a chance to participate in his 300th win in Milwaukee um, as the uh, came in relief. In that game, it was supposed to be my day to throw on the side, but back then we didn't have 14-man pitching staffs. We only had 10 guys on the pitching staff, so if somebody was on the shelf that day, the guy who who's on the side's gonna have to pitch. And I ended up pitching to two guys. They both bunted, they both reached base. Tony Fossis, the aforementioned mechanic, gave up a home run to, to um, I think it was Julio Franco, and I ended up getting giving up some Ernie's that day. I shouldn't have given up, but um, Nolan got his 300th win that night against his Milwaukee. So he was, and it was. Part of me was happy, was very happy to be. I'm very happy to have been there that day, and part of me was happy to be just participate in that game. He was, yeah, he was a legend. Yeah, Nolan was a guy I, I wanted to get your opinion on. Yeah. Uh, besides playing with him in '86, I mean, when you were drafted in '82, that that guy every time you would go to spring, I mean, yeah, that was right. the guy. Oh, he yeah. was the epitome of a starting pitcher at that yeah. time and for the organization. He Nolan was the ultimate competitor. We used to talk about. Back in those days, you could advertise cigarettes, and all the ballparks had the big giant Marlboro Man on the wall, outfield wall. We said Nolan Ryan is the Marlboro Man. That's who he is. He's he's his nickname is Tex. Uh, he's from from Texas. Um, you know, but I remember going to spring training and watching him throw batting practice. You know, guys put the, the L, you put the L screen up there and you're throwing some BP. Well, guys didn't want to hit against Nolan, and I couldn't figure out why. It's just BP. He didn't want you to hit the ball. He, he, he would throw, if guys took big swings, he would throw at them in the batting cage. He would throw at guys and he would finish his round of BP. He would go and run, run foul pole to foul pole. Then he'd come back and throw some more. And if, again, if you took a big swing, you're on your keister the next pitch. Um, and that's during spring training with, a, with an L screen in front of you. The man was an ultimate competitor. We ended up, he'd go pitch six, seven, one hit innings and he'd come in and ride the exercise bike for 30 minutes after he got done. I, I honestly oh. trying to work, trying to follow him around in the weight room and work out with the man. It was like trying to trying to duplicate what Superman was doing. I always tell people he wasn't human. He's from Krypton. He, he what he was he being able to pitch like that at age forty six. It was just miraculous. But it was a testament to the hard work he put in between starts. And I think I learned more from that than I did just more. I couldn't duplicate what he did on the mound, so I didn't try to do that. But I tried to duplicate what he did between starts, uh, just make myself that much better because he was just amazing. Could. He when he hung it up in '93, do you do you think he could have probably hung on and been competitive for a couple more years? No, no. If you no, if you remember, he walked off the field in Seattle holding his arm. He got hurt against oh. the Mariners. I, I think it was pretty much done at that point. His, his last, and I was really sad at that point because I retired in '93, and I remember watching him come off the field and thinking, yeah, it's just a shame that he doesn't end on a higher note than that because it was kind of a quiet, quiet exit for uh, you know, one of the greats of all time. For a very loud career. <laughs> oh, wow. Just, yeah. just amazing. And it, it, it also strikes me because, you know, there are so many other greats in other sports. I, I think Michael Jordan sort of famously wasn't the best teacher. Right. It was like, right. I, how do you tell people to just you don't. like Michael Jordan, right? You don't. And so, well, so how did it, he bridge why, that gap? Well, it's why great players don't oftentimes make great managers. 
right? Yeah. I mean, think about it. How many, how many Hall of Fame players become good baseball managers? Not very many. Hardly any. Ted Williams was a lousy manager, right? Mm-hmm. Pete Rose was a lousy manager. Um, so I, I think some of, some of that communication skill is, is you know, here's, here's how, what I did to get there. Some of it's just natural ability. Those guys have so much natural ability that they, they have a hard time explaining, why can't you do what I do? Keith Hernandez is a guy that you know I, I talked to when he comes into Coors Field. We played against him, and he he wrote a book about this. Um, they actually had him sit down. I was in his first book, by the way. In his first book, he was a diary of the '86 season, and the Mets came in and knocked me around, and he was kind of ripping me in his book. I was injured. I tried to pitch hurt, and didn't do very well. And so Come my dad, I got all my the da- facts in there. <laughs> I bought my dad the book for Christmas, and my dad said, "You got to hit that." Effort next year. Well, I, I got him out the next time I faced him, and but he did apologize to me later. He said, "I never knew you were hurt," but um, that doesn't matter. The book he wrote after I, after we'd all retired, he analyzed two games. He sat down and watched one on TV, and he sat down and watched one in person, and he analyzed them pitch by pitch. And I said, "Why wouldn't you want to be a manager?" Because I'd have to do that every night. I can't do it. I couldn't do that every single night because that's what managers have to do. That's what catchers can do. That's why you have half the major league managers are former catchers because they analyze things. They, everything changes depending on the outcome of the last pitch. And that's why catchers usually make such good managers. But somebody like Nolan, again, he didn't teach by telling you something. He never went to, came up to people and told people anything. He, he led by example. He, you watched him and you tried to learn from him. <laughs> I remember um, we were in Philadelphia and I, I hadn't been to Philadelphia before. So I got up that morning, put on my T-shirt and shorts, and, and I was going to go walk around and see where Rocky – made a statue and all that kind of stuff right so i come i come back in the hotel about right about lunchtime and i just walk in the front door and i go to the elevator and i go to my room no problem right change my clothes get ready get on the early bus and go go to the ballpark well the early bus was me and nolan and charlie kerfeld and a couple other guys and nolan starts talking in the clubhouse which he never never really did and he said and he's got that high-pitched texas draw and he said you know i saw something i've never seen before today and we all kind of, oh, what was that? He goes, I saw a major league ball player walking through the lobby in shorts and tennis shoes. <laughs> I got, I just started slinking down in my chair, right? Because I know he's talking about me. He didn't call me out, but he's talking about me. And there's only a few guys in there. But I'm like, where can I hide? I just got called out by the great Nolan Ryan. Where can I hide? Right oh, now? man. Um, and I, you know, I just, at that point, Nolan was from the era where you didn't leave your hotel room without a tie on. That's it. Sparky Anderson wouldn't let his guys leave without a jacket and tie on. It didn't 112 degrees in Arlington. You're still wearing a coat and tie to the ballpark that night. So Houston wasn't quite that strict, but Nolan was, Nolan was, this is what you do. And, you know, I was telling somebody the other night, I had a cousin lived in Iowa was in the cattle business and they came down to watch me pitch in Houston. And Nolan was in the, was, is in the cattle business. And so he wanted to get, so I got him into the ballpark early for batting practice. And, and he comes in, he goes, can I meet Nolan? So I asked Nolan to come over. So I, I brought him together at the batting, at the backstop. And my cousin introduced himself and said he does this. And they talked cattle for 30 minutes. <laughs> I, I'm like, what? what are you doing? My cousin didn't mention baseball to Nolan Ryan and talked cattle with him for 30 minutes. I said, what a great guy. I said, you didn't even say baseball to him. Well, yeah, we were talking cattle. That's that's the kind of guy he was, and, and again, you went to him for advice, and he'd give it to you. In fact, I interviewed him once. Uh, I was an active player, but I was writing a diary for the Rocky Mountain News. May they rest in peace. And, right? <laughs> and so I was. I put my tape recorder down on the plate. We're both in our uniforms. We're in the lunchroom. I put my tape recorder down in the middle of the, of the table, and I asked, started interviewing him. No one didn't take it as an interview. No one looked at me. He was lecturing me. He was telling me how I'm going to do things. I don't, he didn't look at the microphone. He didn't talk to the microphone. He answered my questions like he was the professor and I was the student, and that's how I took it. I still have that cassette tape. 
Wow. I, that's I, awesome. I, that's cool it, that Nolan, your cousin, made you the third wheel. And you're like, oh, hey, no man. Question. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't know anything about cattle. Another, <laughs> another guy who pitched, you know, rather late into his career was also from Texas that you got to see uh, pretty up close in the AL East was uh, Roger Clemens, 87 AL Cy Young Award, won in 86, was the MVP that year. He was about good. If I recall correctly, he was good. He was not bad. Uh, in fact, the game that I beat him in Fenway – uh, he struck out 11 or 12. I struck out two. And uh, <laughs> I, I, you talk about getting the most out. I threw 89 minutes. Who's counting, though? It was late in the year, and they won. They, I think they'd already won the division, and they wanted to go home. And so Jody Reed and Ellis and the rest of those guys were up there swinging at the first pitch. It was great. Well. It was great. Slide, uh, you know, slider, sinker, and hit a ground ball, and we're out of here. Um, and so I think I beat him 3-1 to one in, in, in there. But he was just – I remember – to asking an umpire once, I said, you know, we can't hit this guy. What if one of our guys just charged him out? Would you throw him out of the game? He said, yeah. So why would not we just have somebody go up there and get hit? And nobody wanted to do it. Here, here's the video against us right here against Milwaukee. Um, he was just, he was the closest thing there is to Nolan Ryan. And this, I'm not even talking about the steroids thing because we know that that alters his finals career stats and that makes, he yeah. pitched longer than he should have and all that. But while he was, what you're seeing on the screen right now, he was, again, that beautiful full, oh. full wind-up delivery. Um, effortless. The, he was known for his workout routine. At that point, he'd gotten into, I think Roger had gotten into what Steve Carl did, the rice bucket, you know, kind of the Kung Fu kind of stuff. It was another way of training, but it's just the same thing. It's just incredibly hard work. Um, and he was known for that as well, just like Nolan. And he idolized Nolan. He wanted to be Nolan. He was the closest thing to somebody that could be Nolan because he just, you know, he developed a split finger later in his career. It's like Nolan developed a changeup. Um, mm. But the, the miraculous thing was I saw Roger in, in college when he was at Texas, played against him in the summer leagues in, in Kansas and Nebraska, wasn't anywhere near this kind of pitcher. So, I mean, A-ball wasn't near this kind of pitcher. Really made himself into a great, mm. great, great Hall of Fame pitcher. Well, that's, that's it's, funny you, you right it's funny you, you, you mentioning him pitching uh, at the University of, of Texas. And Texas, uh, yeah. he actually, at, at 56 years old recently, I think it was last summer, uh, played yeah. in an yeah. alumni game. Uh, yeah. And Kale's got the video for us. He's going to pull that up, yeah. and you can see his determination at 56. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I do not. Doubt I, I don't know if you want to give him a scouting report at at 56, but you can kind of <laughs> see, you know, the the best of his stuff here in this start. And and he's got 20 year olds, you know, behind him playing defense. But yeah. it doesn't matter, you know. Even a couple of them were his kids. Yeah. He he wanted to go out and, and shove. And at, and at 56, he kind of held his own, gave up yep. a couple of runs again, was not mm -hmm. very happy. And our, and our buddy John yeah. boy did a good yeah. job covering this video. I, you know, I, I know I've played in a lot of alumni games and you get, um, you get the, the, the juices get flowing a little bit. You don't want to be embarrassed. You're going to go out there and do what you can do. <laughs> but um, I, I think most of us would say that we can, again, you can see here, we can duplicate our pitching motion. I could duplicate my pitching motion right now, but just the next day I wouldn't be able to walk. <laughs> that's just how it works you just can't you can't bounce back and, and and do what you do i play catch i don't throw batting practice for my team at all because i know i could first of all i'd hit people because i don't know how to just stand up there and toss it in there to, and throw strikes if i try to go through all the edges like that, and stuff yeah i'd go I'd, I'd be hitting people all over the place but but again it's just because i wouldn't be able to move my arm the next day so i think nolan or roger probably felt like you know i'm gonna go give it give it this what i got but tomorrow i'm gonna spend a lot of time in the hot tub Walking is overrated, by, in my opinion. So you got to go out there and, and, and get the job done there. He still got it. He still looks like he's got yeah. some movement on that on that oh. deuce he's got. <laughs> he, yeah, he, he, on that fastball. Yeah. He, again, he 
doing it for one day, I think, yeah, I could see that. But tomorrow, the next day after this, he was a hurting unit, I promise. <laughs> it was feeling it's fun, it, though. Man. Those kids had to have a great time doing this, though. That, what a great thing for them. Bruce Hurst, another guy. Yeah, played yeah. with Clemens. Uh, mm-hmm. Had a really great season in, in '88. He ended up pitching. Uh, was he, he was on the '93 Rockies too, right? Briefly, yeah. He came over in the trade, yeah. that, the ill-fated trade that sent uh, Brad Osmus to San, mm. to San Diego. Um, that, mm. you know, they brought Greg Harris, my former teammate with the Padres, came over too in that trade. And I played with Bruce a little bit in '92. Not didn't have the same stuff he had as a Red Sox. As a Red Sox, he yeah. was you know amazing. The, the prototypical lefty, get guys to get themselves out, especially righties trying to hit over the green monster. Bruce was, he was a, a great guy. He's a BYU guy or Utah. I know he's from Utah. I don't see, he went to BYU, but um, Bruce was a, uh, was a tough, great competitor. All these guys, let's get lost. All these guys were great competitors. A lot of these guys would have trouble pitching now because they'd get taken out of the game in the fifth inning and they'd be angry. I mean, Rogers, mm-hmm. gonna, gonna, he's planning to go seven, eight innings. I know I always felt like if I didn't get into the seventh inning, I didn't do my job. We used to call it mm-hmm. five and fly, and it was it was not in a, it was not a good thing. If you did a five and fly, you're not happy. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the starter goes five innings. Yeah, great. We got the, the bullpen lined up. Um, and I think some of these competitors, I mean, can you imagine being the manager trying to go take the ball out of Bob Gibson's hands in a tight game in the seventh inning? That wasn't happening. Roger mm-hmm. wasn't going to give the ball up in the seventh inning of a one-one game. Um, neither was Bruce. I, it's just the way they were that back then. It's just the games changed a lot in that way, not necessarily for the better. Yeah, Mark, Bill Swift was a, a guy mm-hmm. in 93, but the mm-hmm. Giants second in the uh, NL Cy Young. He came yep. over uh, with, with Larry Walker. A lot of people yep. don't remember that yep. that offseason, again, a very short offseason because right. it was yep. after strike. the strike, yep. that the Rockies essentially got the two biggest free agents mm-hmm. with Larry Walker yep. and Bill Swift. Did you think he would have a, uh, a slightly better transition? I think he pitched yep. well, but he wasn't okay. the same Bill Swift. Well, again, yeah. he was at, when he was in San Francisco, he had that heavy air, and he's a sinker ball guy and all that, and I think it was a perfect place for him to pitch. This was not necessarily a good fit. The Rockies back, back then were looking for ground ball pitchers, and I think, I think they've realized that now they need guys that can strike people out because ball, ball that gets hit on the ground can still be a hit. Ball gets into the catcher's mitt, didn't do any damage. So I think they're looking for more power guys now than they used to. But back then, Billy, Billy fit the profile, the guy you wanted here, because he was a sinker ball guy. He had success with the Expos and success with, uh, with San Francisco, and it just didn't work. And again, I don't think he was 100% healthy in him, as himself when he got here either. I, th- I don't want to use the term damaged goods, but it just wasn't 100% healthy when he came over here. Yeah, uh, that, that was, I, I vaguely remember that. I was pretty well. I, I'm in, I'm not, let me do the math real quick. I was... I remember being disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> so, now you're sorry. showing off. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. But <laughs> I did watch those. It's it's funny because those are, you know, they are just some of my earliest memories yep. of being really plugged into baseball. And, yep. and I remember thinking, oh, we got we got Larry Walker and Bill Swift. And then Bill yep. Swift kind of became a you know thing. And then Larry Walker became Larry Walker. And all favor, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there, you there go. it is. Uh, <laughs> During your career, Mark, uh, two other guys I want to talk about. I know you'll you'll have a lot to say about another one and about one of them. The other one, I'm really interested to see what you take. I'll give okay. you the easy one first. Robin Yount, 89 AL MVP, sure. Hall of Famer. I mean, what is there left to be said about him? But you got to only, see him. Up close only first. guy win the MVP at two different positions because he was shortstop, he was a shortstop and, and a center fielder. Yeah. Um, again, that you can't talk about Robin without talking about Paul Molitor, obviously, but, but team, I mean, Robin was all about the team. We didn't have the electronics with, you know, the scoreboard didn't display your batting average and all that kind of stuff. Normally Mm -hmm. guys would have to have a game. And then the next day, the day after the game, 
guys would the, the PR department would come in with these that, the things we get in the, in the press box now. Drew the big double sided sheets of paper that have all the stats on. They'd come in and drop some on the on the table in the middle of the room, and you'd see guys wander over there because they wanted to see what their ERA was or their <laughs> or their batting average was. They because you didn't know unless you saw the morning paper. Robin never one time ever went over there to see what his batting average was. He never wanted to see where he was on the on the all time hit list or the or any, this or the other. Robin and Paul would. Um, Robin would sometimes sacrifice himself in the first. He's batting second. Paul's leading off. Paul gets on first base. Robin's going to hit the ball to the right side or, or do, take as many pitches as he can to be able to tell the guys coming up after him what's, you know, what this guy's got today. Right. We were facing Don Sutton once. Don had been a former brewer, was now pitching for the Angels. We were facing Don Sutton one, on a day game, and they had been talking to me about how Don Sutton cuts the ball. He physically cut the ball, put a little cut in the ball to make it move. And so I said, oh, I'm going to check this out. So... Paul leads off the game, gets on base. I don't know if we got a hit or a walk. But Robin comes up and hits a screaming one, one hopper right at the second baseman, bobbles a little bit, flips it to second. The shortstop throw comes into our dugout, and I go over and I grab the ball. And sure enough, it's got a scuff mark, a cut mark right where Robin said it would. And Robin comes back to the dugout after the inning. He said, "Yeah, I hit a, I hit a, what do you call it, a scuff ball or cutter or whatever." He said, "I," and I'm thinking, "Why don't these guys say something to the umpire about this? You didn't do that back then. You didn't rat out your former teammate like that. You just battled him. You knew what he had. You know what he was going to do. You just battled him." And that's the way Robin approached the game. Robin, you know, Don Baylor and Robin were a really good combination when they got there because they're both old school, here's how you play the game the right way type guys. And you don't worry about your stats and you don't worry about your accolades. You know, you certainly don't have a Twitter handle, not that that existed back then, but you see what I'm saying? You're not self-promotion. No, there was no self-promotion in Robin Young, none. Um, even now, yeah. if he comes back to a game in Milwaukee, he's kind of sheepish about things. He was sheepish about attention. He just wanted to go out and play. And, you know, that famous picture when Juan Davis threw a no-hitter for us in 87. Um, Robin, the last out, Robin dives for a fly ball and catches it in right center field in Baltimore. And I always teased him. I said, you didn't have to dive for that ball, did you? And he kind of looks at it, get a little gray, and he goes, I probably could have caught it if I kept running. But he dove for the ball to finish off Juan Davis' no-hitter. And, I mean, that's an iconic image now. For him. There's, there's a lot of iconic images with Robin Young, but he was just – the ultimate team guy, the ultimate pro, the ultimate, the, the great teammate. And I tell my high school kids now, if, I, if you leave here, one thing, one thing I want to remember about you is that you're a great teammate. Not your batting average, not how many games you win, not how many guys you strike out, but that you're a great teammate. And I think, I think that, that goes underrated sometimes. And you can't underrate that with Robin Young. He was the ultimate teammate. You also can't, you can't overrate his hair. Best hair of any teammate you've ever had? The thing is that he still got it that way. It's so, so nasty does. now. <laughs> it's I, amazing. It looks so bad now. He's 65 years old. He's still got the uh, – I'd like – you know, his, his nickname is Kid. So I said, if I saw Kid right now, I was like, dude, cut that stuff off already. Jeez. He's probably I, down – he lives, he lives down in Phoenix. He's probably on his motorcycle right now, his, motor, his dirt bike right now. That's – I mean, couldn't sit still. I, I got similar lettuce coming off my head here. Yeah, with but it's, the, not, it's, not all gray. it's not all gray. It's <laughs> all gray and nasty now. All right, the second guy I wanted to get back to, we, we talk about these guys who are on the cusp for being a Hall of Famer. You talk about yep. how great Keith Hernandez was, of course. Um, you know, Don Mattingly, a borderline yep. Hall of Famer, great yep. manager. Yep. Dave Parker. Dave Parker, you played with him in 90. He was an uh, all-star that season. It I was did. his last big year. He was. What, what, what's your take on, mm-hmm. on the Rattlesnake? Uh, well, we called him Parkway, and he—he, he, um, you know, Dante had the sledgehammer when he got here, and they played sledgehammer for him when he goes mm-hmm. to bat and all that. Well, he got that mm-hmm. from Dave because they were traded for each other. Dave went to the Angels when Dante came to the Brewers, and Dave left behind his blue and gold sledgehammer that he'd swing on deck. Um, he, 
this is a guy whose mouth never stopped. I honestly got his mouth never stopped. He said, I, I was kind of thin then, and he'd say he'd tell me I'd be stretching. He said, "Get your big pipe cleaner body up off the ground." You know, he, he 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 was teasing everybody all the time, um, and he. But obviously, we've all seen the throw from right field in the All Star game, and the great um, the ability was amazing. But he was also uh, a, he was a great teammate in a different way. He was just an entertaining guy to be around, and he he was. You guys remember Zubaz pants? Those team mm-hmm. low, those sweatpants that had different colors. He got in the, on the bottom floor of that. He would bring them into the clubhouse trying to sell them to us. He was a sale. He was selling <laughs> cell phones. He was selling Zubas. He was just he was into all that stuff. But one thing I always remember about Park that people people didn't know: he would not sign a baseball card of a team he wasn't currently playing for. So like when he people bring a Pirates card to him when he's a Brewer, he wouldn't sign them. He only signed Brewer cards. And huh. when it was the Reds the same way. It was only Reds cards. So he I was an interesting that. character. He was a very interesting character and a fun guy to be around. And I think um, we all benefited, obviously, from having him there. Um, but when they made the trade, they brought Dante to Milwaukee. I think, you know, Dave's on, now he's on the team with Reggie Jackson. Oof. I would have been a fly in the wall in that clubhouse. That would have been fun. <laughs> we have one of those guys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Uh, that's good stuff. I, I think that's all the players that we wanted okay. to talk to you okay. about, man. I, I feel like we could go on and on for. Oh yeah, but we, yeah. we all got stories. Uh, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there will be more in the future. We'll have to have you back. Get so, a little more. I feel like the the Greg Maddox itch barely got scratched there. Okay. There's there's more to talk about there. Plenty of other stuff. Uh, I even just want to talk about a few random ones. Just Pedro Martinez appreciation. I was hoping to get to today. We didn't get any of that he, in here. <laughs> you know? Only time I faced Pedro, he walked me on four pitches. I think he saw saw me on the on deck circle. Saw me swinging. He walked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I part of that guy. He walked you on four pitches. Four pitches. Four pitches. <laughs> it was in AAA, so it doesn't matter. It was in AAA. He, Tucson he was, was it Tucson? Oh. He was in Albuquerque. He was on the same team with Mike Piazza and Eric Young and those guys in Albuquerque in '92. And I was playing for Las Vegas that year. So, yeah, yeah, he's in the Albuquerque Dukes uh, mm-hmm. Hall of Fame with, with his brothers, uh, Ramon. And yep. there was a, what was the third brother? I, I don't remember. remember the third brother. He wasn't there at that time. He was younger. No. But yeah, he was uh, – Pedro liked Pedro back then. Pedro had a picture of himself in his locker. Okay. <laughs> we had to walk through their locker room to get to the weight room. So we'd go through there and see Pedro, a picture of himself in his locker. So, oh, hey, dig me. Nicknamed him dig me. But he was obviously – went on to great things. I mean – he was he was incredible. Mark, was. We'll, we'll have you back. We, right, we we can't get enough. We thank you so much for taking the thank time. Thank you so much, Mark. My pleasure. Hey, plug uh, away. Is where, uh, let us know where yeah. folks can uh, can Just hear you on the radio, at, and you got some articles coming out as well. I know. Uh, WoodyPage.com, uh, Twitter at Mark Knutson forty one for the great Tom Seaver, and uh, uh, KFK website in Greeley. I do. Uh, Drew does some stuff up there with Brady Hall. I do. Uh, I write a blog for them as well. So on sixteen hundred uh, AM Saturday mornings, eight to ten. ESPN Radio. <laughs> KFKA in Greeley, yep. Colorado. They, they do a great job yep. up there. So, yep. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep reading you. We'll All keep right, listening to what you're doing, and, and we'll right. invite you back sometime. Everybody out there, make Anytime. sure you're following everyone on social media. At yep. Drew Creaseman, at Patrick D. Lines. It's at Mark Knudsen, right? It's not. 41. 41. 41. At Mark Got, got Tom Seaver in there. That Salute that, to that's Tom. Right. That's right. Um Make sure you're subscribed, as we said before, to the DNVR.com. Use that promo code Rockies right now because when you sign up, you get a free shirt, mask, and a sticker pack. We're trying to beat all the other beats out there, doing a little sub drive right now. I'm diving deep, deep into the Coors Field conundrum. I I told you we did the Blake Street Bombers. Next, it's Todd and the Toddlers. I'm going to do a whole article on just Juan Pierre 
and how he fits <laughs> into this whole course field conundrum thing. Cause yeah. well, first of all, you knew I was going to do that, but yeah, uh, boy. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening into this. Uh, it's just going to be, I think it's going to continue to be a fascinating off season. We didn't even get your takes on, on that and how no one's going to spend any money all off season. No, none, zero, nothing. We'll talk zero about dollars time. will be spent. Zero. Yeah. Right. We've Derek, got to have Derek Rodriguez, Derek Rodriguez used up the budget. So that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> they, got, right. they got a lefty today. I, have, I can't yeah. remember his name already. Uh, Ryan that's, 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 that's the whole point. Yeah. You can't remember his name. That's the whole point. That's right. That's, that's right. All right, guys. Uh, Thanks so much, everyone, for listening in. Continue to be absolutely awesome out there. We will continue to be absolutely Patrick Lyons, Drew Creaseman, and Mark Knudsen in here. And until next time, we will see you at the ballpark.